Hey everybody, welcome to the Cast. I'm your host, Charlie Behrens. Uh, this week, my guest is Packers play-by-play announcer, Wayne Larvie. Uh, We had a really fun interview. Of course, a lot of you saw the First Time Sportscaster video we did last week. So I asked Wayne to come on the Cripes cast, and he said yes. Uh, And we covered a lot in this interview, including Wayne's early days where he snuck into the Boston Garden to do play-by-play on his tape recorder. Really great story um, and a bunch of other stuff. We'll get to it in a second. But first, uh, I want to actually talk to you about my first job. And I promise there's a reason for it. Uh, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But when I was 10 or 11, I started working at this place called the Yarn House. And uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. It was a house with a bunch of yarn in it. And uh, it was in this building from the 1800s. And it just stuck out uh, like a sore thumb from all of its surroundings. It was in this uh, very uh, suburban area. And my job was to kind of do everything. I cut the grass, I cleaned brush, I painted, and of course, I sorted the yarn. I was bad at that. I'm going to be honest with you. I I was not not the best yarn sorter, but you know, I got better over time. Anyway, the woman who owned the yarn house was named Shirley Grady, and she was as unique as the business she started. Uh, Shirley grew up during the Great Depression which means if she ever threw anything out, I was not there to witness it. Uh, She was unconventional, I guess, to say the least. She was a Catholic woman with uh, the kids to prove it. She had 12, 10 of which survived childhood. Um, Her husband passed away in the 80s. And I I always knew her as a strong, independent woman who lived through tragedy, but, you know, never let that dominate her disposition. She had uh, just this amazing lust for the simplest things in life. But what I admire most about Shirley is she just, uh, she didn't give a shit about what anyone thought about her. She did things her way. And people really admired her, uh, you know, unique approach to business and life. And I was certainly among those people. And here's a quick example. One summer, Shirley had a bunch of dandelions in her yard. Now, most people in the suburbs, they see dandelions and they call someone to spray their lawn with a bunch of pesticides to kill them. But not Shirley. She did not call the pesticide man. She called me to pick up all the dandelions. So, I mean, I didn't really ask questions. I was like, okay. Uh, so I did it. I think I was 12 at the time. I don't know. Anyway, I, I go, I pick all these dandelions. I come into the house with literally hundreds of dandelions and yellow stained hands. So I said, what, what are we doing with these? And Shirley said, well, we're making dandelion wine. Of course we are, Shirley. Okay, so we put the dandelions in this big jug in her basement and made dandelion wine. And it was a pretty cool job for a 12-year-old, if I'm honest. Anyway, I I bring this up because Shirley died this week at the age of 95. And I just thought now was as appropriate of a time as any to pass along the life philosophy that Shirley showed me. And that is, when life gives you weeds, make dandelion wine. Anyway, we'll get to uh, Wayne's interview in a moment, uh, but I just want to thank all of you who have taken the time to rate and comment on the podcast. A couple comments I'll read through. J.H. Isaacson says, really enjoyed your podcast with Penholderness. I did not expect that much sincere honesty and humble reflection. I appreciate the respect you both have for each other and your work. Thank you. Thank you, J.H. Isaacson, for that comment. I really appreciate it. And now here's another comment, not as positive. Three and a half stars for the pen interview. Live the discussion on the creative process. I assume he meant to say love the discussion on the creative process. Would have been four stars, but was hoping for a little more character development on the uncle from Baldhead Island. 
And that's from Steve Malloy. Oh, who is my uncle? Real good uncle, Steve. Thanks for doing Thanks for lowering my stars rating because we didn't discuss your character development more. Well, I'll do that right now. So my uncle Steve is, well, he's balder than the island that he met Penn on. And uh, yeah, does that does that help Uncle Steve or no, dear guy? Okay, let's keep her moving. Well, a sincere thank you to all of those who rated and commented on the podcast, including you, Uncle Steve. Uh, I really appreciate you. And one more big thank you to Jolly Good for being an amazing title sponsor for the Cast. We could not do it without them. Jolly Good folks, it's, oh my gosh, that soda is real Gosh darn good in your old fashioned. Okay. And now it is time for the moment you've all been waiting for. Here is my interview with the great Wayne Larvie. What do you think? Are we going to the Super Bowl this year or what? Yeah, I think we've got as good a shot as anybody. Do you? <laughs> you don't say that every year, though, or do you? No, I don't. Um, and I would not have said that about last year's team, I would not have said that about 2016. I think the last Super Bowl team we've had in Green Bay was 2014, and we all know what happened in the uh, final minutes of the NFC Championship game in Seattle. But that was the last really good team we've had. I like the way this team's come along. And, you know, Charlie, in the context, you can only really judge teams in the context of the season they're in. In the context of this COVID season, um, you know, the Packers are as good as anybody, in my opinion, and certainly as good as anybody in the Final Four. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly seen that happen time and again this year where a team is looking good and then they come, you know, 10 people come down with COVID and it totally changes the trajectory of their season. I mean, we've seen it in college football, too. You know, it just it's been a weird year. You know, the the players, um, I don't think we can really appreciate what all the players across the league have had to go through just to play the season. You know what I mean? The fact that they. They basically are um, ensconced in their own residences. They don't go out. They can't go out and that type of thing. And, uh, you know, um, it's really even the bye weeks, you know, the players had to every day show up and and get tested for COVID um, at the facility. So um, it it really from a mental standpoint, there was a physical bye, obviously, but from a mental standpoint, they haven't had any of that. And I think the league and the players especially have done a tremendous job, um, you know, of getting us to this point in the season. Yeah, they really have. And and that's a good point because you don't often think about like if you're Aaron Rodgers, for instance, the amount of pressure as sort of a keystone player, uh, the amount of pressure you have to just, you know, you can't really go. You can't chance it at all or you don't want to, especially now this close to the Super Bowl. I mean, that you're right. Mentally, that's got to put an insane amount of pressure. Have you talked to any of the players about that specifically? You know, Charlie, we have had no exposure to the players, those of us in the media, except on Zoom calls like this one. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's really hard to get a feel for these guys. I mean, we're really looking at these teams, even the teams we cover on a weekly basis, um, from the outside looking in. We're not in the locker room with them during the week, that type of thing. Um, it's hard to get a feel. But, you know, just looking at the way this team has come around, um you get the feeling that there's a certain trajectory that it's on. And the other thing, Charlie, I've noticed in all the years I've been around the NFL and some Super Bowl teams, um, you know, there's almost something mystical about it, about getting to the Super Bowl and certainly winning it. Uh, it's almost beyond X's and O's or talent and all this other stuff we all focus on because we laymen need stats to back up our opinions. <laughs> but, you know, there's almost 
it, it's a mystical thing in the end, you know, and, and I, I kind of came to the conclusion that this year, uh, more than any other that I've seen, you know, the stars have to align to make a Super Bowl run. But your stars have to shine to get it done. And, and that's kind of the, the summary of how I look at the playoffs. Yeah, but, it, you know, you're right about sort of that mystical feeling, too, because they're, they're I mean, I've been watching the Packers since I was old enough to watch TV. And you've you've had sort of those, you know, like there'd be a feeling uh like when Brett Favre went back to pass where you'd be like, oh, no, this is going one <laughs> of two ways, you know, I, but you didn't quite have the confidence that um, though it would be a fun play to watch, that it was going to be a reception on an interception. But I feel like everything with the Packers this year, whether it's the passing game, the running game, the defense, it just feels like we have momentum. So, I mean, I don't know if that's that mystical thing you're talking about, but I feel good going into the games, which it, that was not the case last year. And I almost feel like it started maybe midway through this year, or uh, I think at the beginning of this year, and you watch this closer than me, so let me know if you think I'm wrong. But the beginning of this year, it seemed a little bit like last year where we would, you know, let it kind of go in the third quarter a little bit. But especially the past few weeks, I feel like it's just been, we've had that momentum throughout the game. And maybe that's that mystical thing you're talking about. You know, it's interesting. You go back to the sixth week of the season when the undefeated Packers were ripped apart in uh, Tampa Bay by the Buccaneers, 38 <laughs> You're bringing that up right now? Yeah, I'm going there. <laughs> <laughs> I know I shouldn't, but I'm going there. Yeah. And Rodgers after the game, and, you know, Aaron picks his spots, but he he says things. He's not a typical interview. Aaron Rodgers, I, one of my favorites to talk to, because he doesn't give you – most of the times when we ask these athletes or coaches especially uh, a question, we know the answer. I can give you the answer as I ask the question. Um, but with Aaron Rodgers, you don't get that. You get an honest opinion, his thoughts, and, and they're not necessarily kosher to what everyone else seems to think. So they get their doors blown out in Tampa Bay, 38 unanswered points by the Buccaneers. And after the game, somebody asked Rodgers about, you know, where does this, what's the deal and this type of thing. He says, I think it was an anomaly. And I think we needed to get our butts kicked a little bit. He said asses. Can you say that on this family? Yeah, yeah you, you can say okay. asses if you want. Okay. Yeah, that's in the Bible, Wayne. So, you know, yeah. we've got our defense, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you, you you know the Bible. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, he said we needed to get our asses kicked a little bit. We were a little too full of ourselves. And I thought after that, you know, again, um, that was the, the first loss of the season. Uh, they would lose to the Vikings at home in a game that, just one of those things. You know, it's a very windy day. Dalvin Cook went off on him. And Dalvin Cook's a great enough player that he can single-handedly win a game for a football team. And he did. And then after that, the only other loss was uh, at Indianapolis. And that was an overtime loss. And and really, uh, a fumble early in that overtime, in that first drive of overtime, cost uh, the Packers that game. But so, you know, the, the point is this. I think you're exactly right, Charlie. This team, it's a little bit different than what we've seen. Um, they especially late in the season, you know, they, that game against Tennessee, I, I know my partner, Larry McCarron, he said, that's the game that convinced him because Tennessee came in big time running game, big time offensive with the leading offensive team in the league scoring wise. At that point, the Packers just shut them down. Um, and that was good. And then the following week, so you say, okay, well, what are they going to do the following year? They might go to Chicago and lay an egg. Um, and they did not. Um, they, the last game of the regular season, 
the Packers playing for home field. And they, you know, the Bears were playing for their playoff lives. It was a good ball game into the fourth quarter. And then at one point, the Packers said, okay, the Packers did what championship teams do. They said, okay, uh, we've had fun playing with you guys, but it's over. And they, boom, 14 unanswered points. The game was over. That's the kind of thing that real championship teams do. It, it's not that they blow you out from the first quarter on. No, they kind of let you hang around a little bit, make you think like you have a shot, and then they just, you know, step on your neck and kill you. So that's, I see that in this team a little bit. Well, that that's exactly it. I, I feel like I felt that way during the Eagles games when there was kind of that third quarter, a bit of a comeback. It just felt like a mouse playing or a cat playing with a mouse for a little bit yeah. before it uh, – turns it into dinner. But it's it's nice that they've had a bunch of sound victories recently too. Hey, with with Chicago, you were in Chicago for a number of years. First of all, what was that transition like? Cuz you came to Green Bay in what 98? 99. 99. Okay. So, you know, the Packers had just been to a couple Super Bowls and and you're making that transition from Chicago to Green Bay. I mean, how did that feel? Were fans mad? What what was the transition like? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad there wasn't social media. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I probably wouldn't have had the guts to make the move. But I, I didn't think much of it, Charlie. I'd been mm-hmm. in Chicago for 14 years. And as a kid, I grew up in the 60s back in Massachusetts, you know, as mm-hmm. a little kid following the Lombardi Packers. So there was always something magical about the G, about the colors. My, my favorite colors were green and gold. Um, I had a lunchbox with Jim Taylor in his green, Green Bay jersey, number 31 on that lunchbox that I carried to St. Mary's School in Lee, Massachusetts every day. Oh, um, wow. You so went th- to- this was, you know, it was always in my head. And then when I got into this business, I said, well, there are two teams that I really felt passionate about as a kid, um, the Green Bay Packers and the New York Yankees. And I said, if I ever get a chance in this business to broadcast games for either one of those teams, Whatever I was doing, I'd have to drop it and go do that. I would have to do that or I'd regret it. So, you know, um, Jim Irwin became a friend of mine over the years uh, as in broadcasting and that type of thing. And and so one day he uh, he announced he was going to retire. He and Max were going to retire. And, uh, you know, they called and said, would you be interested? And I said, sure, I'd be interested. But, um, you know, at that time I was doing the Bears. I was doing filling in on some Cubs games. I was doing the Bulls on WGN TV. I was doing Big Ten football and basketball. I had a lot going on. and But the Packers uh, job, the reason it was important for me was just this whole thing about the Green Bay Packers, that whole mystique that's still in my mind. Lambeau Field on a Sunday afternoon, if you're going to broadcast NFL games on the radio on a Sunday afternoon, where better to do it than Lambeau Field in Green Bay? And I'll tell you what, all of my colleagues around the league, Everybody says, hey, when we get a game in Green Bay, that is just huge. That's a red letter day for everybody. They just love coming here to do the games. That's such a cool story, uh, too, to hear because you did have you were doing a bunch of different teams and then you you kind of said, no, I'm going going to Green Bay. It's cool that that's like instilled in you. What do you think it is about the Packers uh, specifically that kind of gives people that sense? There are a lot of factors involved. I mean, for people my age in their 50s and 60s, they probably do remember the Lombardi era and all that it meant. And I mean, the uh, the championship trophy is named after Lombardi. And if you weren't around for those years, you I'm sure you've seen all the NFL film stuff and the documentaries and everything else. That team kind of captured America. 
And then the Packers, uh, kind of like the Israelites in the Bible, uh, <laughs> left Egypt and uh, toiled in the desert for 40 years. God, I didn't know the Sinai Desert was that hard to find your direction, but they did. Uh, and then we all know that I'm being facetious, of course. But the Packers right. were kind of on that, that little pilgrimage into the desert. Yeah. And they weren't really relevant. Um, in Briefly at times in the 70s and, and very little in the 80s, until you got to about the mid-90s when you got Ron Wolf and uh, Holmgren and then Brett Favre came on board. And then it was funny because Favre and then Reggie White, the Minister of Defense, they kind of recaptured the country. I mean, it was their personalities and everything else. But I honestly believe this, Charlie, there was an undercurrent of people in their 40s at that point in time, or maybe 30s, who still remembered as a kids the Green Bay Packers, uh, who were the, you know, they kind of were in the advent of the NFL becoming the number one sport. Color TV was just coming on track, and there were the, the Packers winning the first two Super Bowls. People remembered that, and I think that helped um, that Holmgren-era Packers team to recapture America. And then, you know, follow uh, Brett Favre, who was such a wonderful personality, and the way he played the game was so much fun to watch, whether you had skin in the game or not. Uh, for for us, of course, you're you're exactly right. Every time we went back yeah. to throw, he was either going to do something <laughs> you've never seen before, or he was going to throw it away. And yeah, so, yeah. You know, it just there there was no in between there, but it was exciting. So there was that, and then Aaron Rodgers follows with a different level of excellence. And yeah. so yeah. I, I think you know that's kind of where they the Packers are. That's why they're a national team, and they, I think they were on national TV like seven times this year. Amazing when you think about it. It is incredible because it's the smallest market in the NFL. And, you know, you've had a lot of time working with the Packers and the fans. And I feel like they're that sort of mystical thing you're talking about. I think that kind of exists in, in the fan base, too. And, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to pinpoint what it is. And I've been asked what it is just because of my, you know, Packers fandom. But, but what do you think it is that gets the fans so diehard about about the Packers, so it, which it doesn't extend to every other sport in Wisconsin. I don't think it extends to any other team in the country, frankly, but I, I could be a little biased, you know. Uh, <laughs> but w what do you think it is about uh, the the fans that intrigue them so much about the Packers? And it may be similar to the answer you just gave. You know, um, it's very that's a great question, um, but. There is a, a sense of ownership on the part of this fan base that you, you don't quite have on other fan bases. I mean, you know, when, when Bears fans talk about the Bears, they say we and this and all that. And, and, but with the Packers, in some cases, in a lot of cases, they are owners. They yeah. own a share of stock in the Green yeah. Bay Packers. Um, I think it's the small town aspect of it. That it, and it's Wisconsin, and the Packers are the, the team in Wisconsin, the state's team. Um, you know, there are pockets that, that love the UW and, and grad, you know, graduates and, and fans love uh, Wisconsin sports. Uh, there's a pocket that love baseball and love the Brewers. Uh, but, you know, a lot of those Brewers fans, they were Cubs fans or White Sox fans before the Brewers came here because, um, you know, they lost their team. The Braves moved to Atlanta in the mid-60s, and, and they didn't have baseball here for a while. And thank God for Bud Seelig who brought it here. Um, but so there's an, a, a fan base for the Brewers and, and the Bucks, of course. Uh, uh, there's a great fan base for them as well. But the Packers kind of encompass everything. And, and they've been here longer than anything except for the university, of course. Uh, but they've been around longer. So I think that's a big part of it. But, Charlie, it's interesting. 
with Packers fans. I, I think, number one, there's that ownership feel, whether you own a share of stock or not. Uh, there's that small town feel. But then there's this other thing, and I think Packers fans are very knowledgeable, try to make themselves knowledgeable of the game itself. And, and here's the other thing that we as Packers fans have in common. We are real tough on our team. We take wins a hell of a lot tougher than most people take losses. <laughs> you know, I can tell you that true. right now. How many games, how many Mondays have you been in Wisconsin? And somebody says, well, the Packers won the game. Boy, that was an ugly win, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. you know this I mean? year. This year it ugly happened. Win. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, there's nothing ugly about a win on any given Sunday in the National Football League. But we kind of dwell on that. And and I think, and I get caught up into this, and Larry and I have talked about it this year. We get caught up in the deficiencies of our team because it's like anything else. We're trying to say, okay, let's shore this up. And once we shore this up, we'll have the complete pie. Well, you know, everybody has deficiencies. And Larry said to me midway through the season, you know, I mean, we're kind of down on our team. We don't think it's going anywhere. But you know what? Um, everybody's got issues. We just don't <laughs> see those issues every day. Right. So everybody's got issues. And, you know, I started looking at things a little bit differently after he said that. And, and you know, um, now when you look at uh, do the Packers have problems? Sure. Do they have deficiencies? Absolutely. But they also got a lot going for them. I mean, Charlie, seven players named to the Pro Bowl, okay? All right, I understand that's a popularity contest in some cases. That's fine. But AP All-Pro. Now, this is the this is the all-star team that the players talk about. And it's been that way since Jerry Kramer and Instant Replay. This is what the real pros, they want to be on the AP All-Pro first or second team because that's the whole league. And that's an objective panel of football people who have basically uh, done that. Uh, they, they make that team. So the Packers put six guys on that, four of them on the starting units. So that's hard to do. That's, you know, there are Super Bowl champions who don't have that many uh, players on the AP All Pro, Pro team. So let's understand nobody's perfect, especially in the NFL this year. Everybody has deficiencies, but the Green Bay Packers have talent. They have a very good football team, and they're as good as anybody left in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah, no, that is true. And, and I like the way Larry uh, kind of put that. He's sort of a football philosopher in that uh, in yeah. that way. It, it's almost like social media, too. You're, I, I don't know how much of a Instagram guy you are, but, you know, you, you go look at everybody else. They're just putting the best version of themselves. But only you know all the faults behind all your pictures and stuff. So it's, exactly. maybe maybe it's similar to that. Now you mentioned uh, a couple. You had a couple Bible references in there. You mentioned you went to uh, St. Mary's. I also went to a St. Mary's when I was a kid. So you know we got that going for us. Uh, but <laughs> which is nice. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know we've all uh, met the uh, uh, bad side of a ruler from a nun in our uh, time. You grew up in Boston, is that right, or Massachusetts? No, I, I grew up in Western Massachusetts, out near the New York border. I went to college in Boston at Emerson College, which okay. was. You know, I grew up in, in the Berkshire Hills, they call it, up in the sticks, okay? I went to college. I went to a city school. It was a, a downtown Boston, and that was an eye-opener for me. What what uh, would your folks do? <laughs> My uh, dad was an executive. He was a purchasing agent at uh, the Hurlbut Paper Company, later became Mead. Um, and my oh, mom really? was a stay-at-home mom, and she later became, uh, you know, uh, the selectman's secretary. Uh, she worked in town government. 
you were in the sticks, so did you do a bunch of farm stuff? Uh, did you, you know, take a, a beater uh, truck and go mudding and stuff like that? Or what was childhood like? <laughs> no, we weren't that exciting at all. <laughs> no, um, you know, we, we would ski in the winter, um, you know, and play baseball in the summer, basically, is what it was. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was a great place to grow up. It, it was, you know, Norman Rockwell Stockbridge was right down the the, uh, the road from us. And um, it, it was an idyllic place to grow up, Lee, Massachusetts, and um, had a lot of fun there. And, and uh, you know, met some great people, great kids that I still kind of, you know, keep in touch with a little bit. And but uh, most of them have scattered around the country. But it's one of the most beautiful parts of the country, uh, New England, Western Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire. Just gorgeous. I haven't been out there yet. I got to get out there. Uh, I've been, I feel like, a lot of places, but I have not been there. When did you realize that you wanted to be a broadcaster? You know, it was kind of in high school. Um, and I, I was a big basketball fan, and, and I played basketball a little bit in high school. You know, the New York Knicks were were hitting their stride in 1969, 70, 71, 72. They won like two world championships in a three-year period when I was just starting high school. And I, I remember listening to their games on, on the radio out of New York. A guy by the name of Marv Albert was doing the play-by-play. And he was a great, great radio play-by-play guy. And I that was when I said to myself, gosh, I'd like to do that. That would be really cool. And, and so that's uh, kind of when I started thinking about doing this. Yeah. And so because the art of it is so difficult, I feel like for a lot of people, when they watch the game, maybe some people, it just they don't pay as much attention to the play by play or they take it for granted, rather. Um, But I feel like there is a certain amount of people that really listen critically and say, you know, that's when they start saying, I could do this better, you know, or I I could do that better. Um, so that was you. You were you were listening to it, not saying you could do it better, but you were saying that's what you wanted to do. How did you practice it? Yes. You know, it's it's funny. Play by play, Charlie, is like anything else. I think you need reps. You need repetition. So when I went to college in Boston at Emerson, I used to go to all the Celtics games and I found a little bag tag, the NBC sports on it. And so I put it on my typewriter uh, case. And then I took a tape recorder and a microphone, headsets, put it in the, in the case, and then dressed up. I got into a coat and tie and suit. I'd walk over to the Boston Garden for every Celtics home game. And I, they, the, you know, they thought I was media. They'd let me in the, the gate. They, I mean, hey, listen, this is way before 9-11. You <laughs> <laughs> can get anywhere right. and, you know, for nothing, basically. And so I, I was, uh, I'd go to the press room, I'd have dinner, I'd get the game notes and everything else. And then I would go upstairs at the old Boston Garden where they did the hockey broadcast because there was nobody in basketball. The media was either down on the floor or on the second level. I went up to the third level to the hockey boxes. There was nobody there. And I would sit down, I'd set up my tape recorder, I'd broadcast the game into the tape recorder, take it back to the dorm and you know, I'd listen to it and that type of thing and, and did that throughout. It was like I was doing every game. In my own mind, I was kind of living the dream, so to speak. And that's how I learned how to do play-by-play. That's incredible. So you got to where you are in your career today by trespassing, basically, is what you're telling me. <laughs> you don't tell anybody, please. I won't. I won't tell us. I think the statutes of limitations are over anyway. <laughs> that's amazing, though. So you just found a badge randomly? Yeah. 
I don't even remember how I found it, but I, I did. And, and it got to the point where then they were giving me playoff badges, real badges to wear for the playoffs. So you just got that ingrained with it, just started meeting people, and then they, yeah. did they, anyone ask what you were doing or? Yeah, no, you know, I'd always say I was uh, at the, I, I was on the college radio station, so I'd use CBS or WECB or something, whatever it was. Okay, cool. So you started doing it for college, you got your reps in, and then uh, what was your first gig? You know, it's funny. Um, I, I was working weekends uh, back in, in the Berkshires down in Great Barrington at a little station on weekends. And they, they would have me rolling records. It was a daytime station. Roll records, read news, read sports, that type of thing. Um, and I was doing that on weekends uh, coming out of college, and, and then I would stay at, at home. But um, that was my first job. And then I started getting some I would kind of circulate my play-by-play tapes a little bit. And I got a job down in Texas when I was a junior in college uh, doing Friday Night Lights, um, high school football and a little basketball. And uh, the guy who hired me made a, an arrangement with my parents that I would come in for one semester. I would do get them through the fall, get them into the winter, and then I'd go back to Boston, go back to college, which I did. So I I took a semester out. I made up that semester in, in a summer school thing. But at any rate, it was a great experience because now here I am down, down in the panhandle of Texas, in Pampa, Texas, living in a uh, driving a company car, the station uh, a KGRO radio, driving their company car, living in a trailer that was my <laughs> boss's family trailer, living in the trailer. And uh, which, by the way, once it got to November, it got a little cool. <laughs> it got yeah, a little cold. yeah. Those Texas winters are nothing to mess with. And, you know, the evenings, um, I was right downwind from um, a Jimmy Dean sausage factory. And I don't know if you've ever caught whiff. <laughs> if you think dairy smells are, are you know, distinct, yeah. this was really something. This takes it beyond, way beyond dairy smells. Right. This is not them cooking the sausages or anything no, no. like that. This is the slaughterhouse, basically. This is the slaughterhouse. Yeah, that kind of thing. So you got the so smell of death coming into your trailer every night. <laughs> Exactly. I can only imagine what I smelled like going to work, but it was uh, it was a great experience because, you know, I had to do a lot of different things, you know, uh, reporting and that type of deal. And and in addition to the play by play, but I really found out that, yeah, I, I like doing this. So it was a great experience. You're, you're going to find that out really quick. If you're living in a trailer in Texas uh, in November, downwind from a sausage factory, you're going to know if you've got what it takes to push through <laughs> in this career. Uh, but that I, I love hearing those stories. I mean, I have a background in broadcast too, and just so many, so many weird, bizarre jobs you get doing that. And that's you know when you find out if if this media thing is sort of right for you because you would do a little bit of everything. That's kind of how media yep. works. You know, it's you, mm -hmm. you don't just walk right into a broadcasting booth and say here you go, you know, <laughs> but what did you learn uh, from that experience that like solidified your passion for it? Well, I, I, I learned that I just really loved it. Um, I enjoyed the challenge of preparing for the games and then doing the games. Uh, a lot of what we do in play by play is, you know, preparation because you're talking about in play by play, a three hour unscripted, um, not even an outline uh, of a performance. It, it really is. And so you've got to, you've got to be prepared for that. And especially in football, you know, basketball can kind of the game up back and forth, up and down, kind of carry itself. Baseball, a lot of it is day to day. It's, 
uh, I found when I was doing the Cubs, it was better when I was there for um, two, three, four weeks when I was doing it a full season of games that it was a lot easier to do than when I was coming in and filling in for Harry Carey on like a Saturday or a Sunday, something like that. Uh, it was harder because you weren't around it. Baseball is something you absorb. Basketball and hockey are, are up and down the game. Action carries it. Um, football is kind of a combination of both in that you've got natural downtime as you do in baseball, but you also have a sport that can ramp up at a moment's notice. So um, I, I really, that's the, the difference in the play-by-play um, that I've been able to do. And it, it's just that, um, you know, I think football is a compilation of those two, whereas it's slow on one hand, it's fast on the other hand. And in, in between, you've got to know what you're talking about. Yeah, and what's been your lowest moment, I guess, in in your lead up to where you are today? Sort of your moment where you're like, I don't know if I can hang here. I don't know if I can do this. I think whenever you lose a job or whatever, that type of thing happens. And we all do. If you stick around long enough, you'll lose a job. And I had been, uh, you know, doing Big Ten games for a long time. And a new company came in. uh, The Big Ten started its own network. And they did it with uh, Fox Sports. And, And, you know, when new people come in, um, they generally make changes, mm-hmm. especially with on-air people. Because why? Because they want to put their own stamp on that product uh, with their own people. So it has. It doesn't have. It's hard, but it's hard because you know we're all performers. So um, you know you, you say to yourself, well, if I was that good, they wouldn't make a change, even though if they wanted to, type of thing. And you find out right away that that's not really the case. And uh, an old broadcast partner of mine, Greg Kelser, who played with Magic Johnson on the Michigan State uh, National Championship team in 1979. Um, he, uh, he, we used to do a lot of Big Ten work together. One time we're flying back on a plane and we're talking about the business. And, you know, he said, Wayne, I've learned one thing in this business. Talent has very little to do with who gets the jobs. Mm. And, you know, you have to kind of look at it that way in some cases. I think the very talented people do get the right, the good jobs. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But um, in a lot of cases, changes are made that are beyond your control or ability level. And, and you know, that's the hard part. That's the hard part of this business. I've not had as much of that as a lot of people have. I mean, there was no point in time in my career where I've been out of work and wondering where my next job was coming from. Um, I always had a lot of different jobs because I felt like, well, if one job falls off, at least I've got this over here, back and forth, that type of thing. And now at this stage of my career, I'm lucky to have a job. <laughs> Let's put it yeah. that way. <laughs> well, that is that's kind of the hustler spirit that uh, you need in a lot of uh, media jobs, sports jobs too. I'm sure. Well, I guess a lot of different uh, professions you need that just to have other irons in the fire. Uh, just because I think that too. Um, you know, and speak from your experience, but in mine, it's like having different irons in the fire allows you to be a little bit more free in the job you're trying to do at the moment. Uh, Because if you're going into a job where you're like, I'll take stand-up for instance. If stand-up was like my only career going throughout, if you take that energy on stage, like I need you to like me, I need you to like this, you just get so tight and your performance is awful and you'll be thinking you're going to screw up and then you'll end up screwing up. You'll be like, don't screw up, don't screw up. Then you'll screw up. You must have a similar thing with doing um, just being on air and doing play by play and everything like that. You must have. Well, I'm not going to say you must, but you go into it with a certain level of looseness and confidence. Is that necessary? 
Yeah, I, I think so. And it's funny how, you know, some of the things, network stuff that I've done over the years, uh, I've had that feeling that of anxiety that you talk about, you know, in terms of, gosh, I've, this has got to be good. It's got to be great or I'll never get the shot again, that kind of thing. And the more you think about that, the harder it is to really be good. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's the same way with you and stand up. I mean, if you're going out there and, and, and you're saying to yourself, if this crowd doesn't like me, I'm dead. Uh, you know, you're going to be pretty tight. You're not going to be as good as you can be. And I think we, we, a lot of it, a lot of times, and the best performers, the best play-by-play -play people, uh, the best national people are those who get out of the air and um, they can kind of, everybody has that in the back of their mind or they wouldn't be where they are. But um, the guy, the people who are able to compartmentalize it maybe, or at least push it to the background and not let it impact how, what they're thinking, how they're feeling, what they're doing, I think that's those are the people who really rise to the top and are top performers. Do you have any tricks of for doing that? Like, do you? I, I don't know. Some people meditate. Some people do this. Some people have a pregame ritual. Do you do anything like that? You know, not really. Um, no, I, I've really never done anything quite like that. I try to prepare. Maybe I over prepare sometimes. Uh, but I, I've always felt that um, you know, it's uh, it's kind of the old Al McGuire uh, theory. Uh, the Marquette coach once said, I heard him at a bank was saying, it's the, the P's. It's proper preparation prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But it, it's funny, Charlie, because when you're doing things like you and I are doing, uh, and, and I, I look at you, you know, your stand-up stuff, um, we can be prepared and all that. But it, it's it's similar to what happens on the field. Now, trust me. The Packers and Buccaneers will take the field this weekend, and they'll both be prepared, prepared beyond prepared. No stone will be left unturned. But so that gives them a chance to be good. But in the end, it's who executes the best, you know what I mean? Uh, so in the end, all this preparation, there are days when you just don't have it, mm -hmm. when you just don't focus and aren't unable to concentrate that well. No, there's, some, there's a term they use for that. You're off your stride, whatever it is. Those things happen, and you're hoping that your preparation will get you through a bad day like that when you just don't quite have it um, because you prepared enough. It won't be as apparent as it would be otherwise. Yeah, that is a good thing to say, though, because, yes, you can prepare and you can overprepare. And this goes for really anything in life. And then you've got a day where, you know, you just you just screw it all up. And the, the worst thing you can do is sit there and analyze or overanalyze your screw up and let that affect the next one. It's kind of like door closes, there's a window open. You just got to keep going. And that we see that happen in the football games all the time. You know, somebody makes a mistake. There's an interception, sack, fumble, whatever it is. But it's it's not about that aspect. It's not about screwing up a joke, you're going to do it, or screwing up a call, you're going to do it. But it's how do you have the preparation and sort of the mental fortitude to move on after that? You know, that's a good point. And the word I was trying to think of is biorhythms. I don't know if you believe in oh. those things. I kind of do. No, you know explain I mean? that. Go go into that because I, I don't know that I know enough about that. Yeah. You know, uh, biorhythms, uh, you know, we're, we're all going up and down, up and down. We're not staying the same day to day. Mm -hmm. and, and it's the same thing with teams and football players. But biorhythms, you know, if your biorhythms are good, you can probably do, you know, great work, uh, whether you're prepared or not. But if you have a bad day, you don't have your biorhythms are off or whatever. Um, you just don't feel it. You can't focus. You can't concentrate. 
Um, and that happens to everybody. Uh, and it doesn't mean you're getting old or anything like that, but um, that's when the preparation has to take over those biorhythms. Uh, you know, you're either good or you're bad. And, but if you're prepared, maybe you're bad isn't as bad as it would be if you weren't prepared, that kind of thing. Right. It sort of becomes your nature. Your second nature is to do this task and you can do it, you know, kind of just rolling out of bed or you can make it passable, I guess. So to, yes. to be able to lean on that when you're having an off day is, is basically yeah, what you're saying. Right. Oh, jeez, Louise, folks. Uh, excuse the interruption, but I want to give a special shout out to our podcast title sponsor. That's the Jolly Good Soda. Now, Jolly Good, as many of you know, is my go-to soda for brandy old fashions. I like to go to the Sour Power Floater in my old fashions. And actually, if you go to JollyGoodSoda.com, you can get a Jolly Good Sour Power t-shirt with an old fashioned on it, cripes, that is some fashionable stuff. Okay, you can you can wear that to church. I'm not fooling you. It goes great with a cheese head and blaze orange, but you better take the cheese head off when you get into church. No hats in church. Anyway, you can get the shirt and soda and even a jolly good muddler when you go to jollygoodsoda.com. Also, I want to give a shout out to Cheese Brothers, another. Very generous sponsor of the podcast. Now, if you're trying to connect with your loved ones during COVID, but you can't do it in person, send them the gift of love. Send them cheese. And Cheese Brothers has 100 years of family experience delivering great cheese from local Wisconsin farmers right to your doorstep. You just open the door and there's the cheese. Holy smokes. And when you use Cripes 10, that's Cripes one zero. You get 10% off your order of Cheese Brothers cheese because Cheese Brothers loves you as much as you love cheese. So head on over to cheesebros.com real quick once and keep her moving. What was your favorite call that you've ever made? Favorite call? Wow. Probably the end of the Super Bowl in Dallas. That was a favorite call, and uh, the Super Bowl '85. I've been I've been to two Super Bowls, Charlie, and you know, really, NFL teams should take note of this. I've only broadcast and been to two Super Bowls, and both teams that I broadcast for won those games. <laughs> so I think before they start hiring their coaches and, and acquiring their players and everything, maybe somebody ought to hire me to come in and win a Super Bowl for them. and pay you a <laughs> pay you a coach's uh, salary yeah. to do it. You know, you know, it's it's funny because I was doing the '85 Bears and they finally win the Super Bowl, and I remember in Soldier Field two weeks earlier. Uh, the NFC championship game, somebody held up a banner saying uh, the dream is reality. And so I remembered that. And uh, at the end of the Super Bowl game, they're carrying Mike Ditka and Buddy Ryan off the field. And I said, uh, the dream is reality. The Chicago Bears are world champions of football. Well, it, the Packers, um, 25 years later, I'm doing the Packers game. And so the Super Bowl, I mean, that, that really was something for me. It was a, a big moment to, to do my team in the Super Bowl, and they win the championship. And so I, I just, uh, you know, I, I couldn't think of what to say. And I just said something about, you know, the title is back in title town, so something to that effect. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, then meant, said the Packers are world champions of football. I mean, uh, you could look it up, but whatever I said. Anyway, those things, that, that when you get that culmination thing, as far as uh, great descriptions on plays, I don't know. There was one play, Ryan Grant. Remember the running back? Yeah. We're in Dallas. It's 2007, playing the Cowboys on a Thursday night. 
And uh, this is the blessed, I call that the blessed season because nobody expected the Packers to do anything. And they got all the way to the NFC Championship game that year. But we're in Dallas and Ryan Grant sprints around the end. And all of a sudden he's like 10 or 15 yards ahead of anyone. And it just, on a horse racing fan, it just popped into my head. I said, Ryan Grant, like secretariat at the Belmont, nobody will catch him. (laughs) That type of deal. I mean, that that was kind of a fun call to make. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's funny because four or five years later, I was in the Lombardi golf tournament and some fan came up to me and repeated that line. And I had not said it since then. So it, it just those things kind of resonate, I guess, with people a little bit. It is cool to see that, to have people sort of feedback to you something that you, no. you said and you, and you can see I'm that. sure you get it a lot. Yeah. I, from from time to time. Yeah. By the way, I got a lot of great compliments on your performance in oh. our video. Did you enjoy doing that? I enjoyed doing it. It was fun. It was great. And, you know, I've told you this and I'll tell our audience this, um, you know, I, I thought your um, when you were making the quintessential Wisconsin old fashioned. Oh, video, yeah. That was the first one my wife and I saw. And we just <laughs> we followed you ever since. So it was a thrill to work with you. It's It really was. Oh, was- thanks. Well, right right back at you. I've been listening to you for years. So it, it was really cool to see. And I will say you're a great actor, too. You really, uh, you really <laughs> embodied your uh, your disdain for me in a great way. <laughs> it was wonderful to see. Uh, you got good feedback from it too, though. Yeah, people really enjoyed it. They they laughed at it. It was fun. Yeah, I mean, people around the country have gotten to see it, so it's been a lot of fun. That's cool. Hey, where did the phrase um, "the dagger" come from? You know, Charlie, it's an old basketball term we we've used for years and years, and. Um, this is like really after I, I was still doing bowls games in Chicago when I came up to do the Packers and I was, uh, Saturday night, I usually was at, um, either the old Chicago stadium or the United center doing a bowls game. And, you know, they would back and forth and come down to the final possession or two in the final seconds and somebody would hit a three point shot. And, and usually we'd say, and that's the dagger, mm-hmm. you know, the other teams, maybe they're up by two possessions. The other team's not going to have enough time to come back and score. So it was the next day I was in uh, Green Bay, and it was the Baltimore Ravens and Packers big game because the Ravens at that time were Brian Billick. They were the defending world champions. They're playing the Packers. We're going back and forth. It's a high-scoring game. And uh, Brett Favre, um, you know, rears back and hits Bubba Franks with a touchdown pass. And this is fourth quarter, and now the Packers are up by uh, two scores. And I, I just blurted out, and there is your dagger after the touchdown call. And uh, that seemed to stick because when I didn't use it in the future, people say, why didn't you use the dagger <laughs> when they w- would win? So it kind of took on a life of its own. And by the time we got to that championship run in uh, 2010, um, people were making bets on when the dagger would come out. <laughs> That's, so what, how many times have you said there's your dagger and uh, or that's the dagger and it was not the dagger. It was a uh, it was a false dagger. Uh, uh, or as Mark Tausch used to call it, a premature dagger. Premature dagger. Yeah. How many times have you Which had now a premature have medication dagger? for Charlie? You know, you know, <laughs> they have health clubs for that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. The first time, it it really didn't work. And I have often told people that this shouldn't count because we were in Seattle. I don't oh, think it was no. 2012 or 2013. This game. It was 2012. 
playing the Seahawks, and the Packers are ahead. I've already done the dagger thing, and Russell Wilson brings the Seahawks back. This Now, you have to understand that this is early in the season, and these are the replacement officials because the real referees had gone on strike that year. Oh, yeah. So they, Russell Wilson throws this ball to him. I want to say it was Golden Tate or somebody like that the, in a gaggle of people in the corner of the end zone, and the official gives it touchdown, and Seattle wins the game, and then there's all this consternation, and there's replay going on, and they sent it up to replay to New York, um, and it was quite apparent that, number one, there was a penalty on the play before the catch was made, and, in fact, it was against Seattle for pushing off, I believe, Charles Woodson on the play, um, and, and the fact is is that it wasn't a touchdown. It, it wouldn't have been a touchdown. It shouldn't have been. And uh, New York reviewed it, and from what I told, was told, I don't know, I believe this, but maybe no one else does, New York said, we can't reverse that call because we'll have a riot on our hands in Seattle if we do. So they let it stand, and the next day, the uh, replacement officials were gone, and the next week, the real officials were back. That's but what that's did it. Uh, that was the first time it happened. Well, I, I think, think you get a pass for that. Oh, it Are happened he, one. It, I said that one you get a pass on, but it happened one other time. You I said? think it might have happened one other time, and I don't recall when it was. Somebody out there would, I know, yeah. I, I'm sure. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, you got to get. Um, do you have shirts that say the dagger on them? Yeah, we did at one time. Um, that was a few years ago. Uh, they were they did sweatshirts and things like that with the dagger thing on. Um, but that didn't that merchandise didn't take off. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we've got a couple around the house, but that's about it. And I, I had very little to do with it. So um, got you, got you. Over the years, have you had uh, established good relationships with uh, a bunch of the players? Uh, some players, it's you know, I've often said this: it's hard to get to know uh, a football team, Charlie. It's it's really the hardest because when you're in baseball, you're with the guys at the batting cage every day. You're on the planes with them the whole bit. Mm-hmm. Um, basketball the same way. We traveled on the charter with the, the bowls and everything else. So you really got to know people a little bit. But um, in football, it's a little different. You have a finite amount of time each day where you can go into the locker room, maybe 20 minutes over lunch or something like that, and, and kind of just be with the players, talk to them, and that type of thing. Most players, unless they're scheduled to do – most of the uh, veteran players, unless they're scheduled to do a media um, uh, interview – they uh, they find a way not to be in the locker room when the media is in there. So mm. it's hard to get to know a football team, but I have gotten to know some guys pretty well. You know, um, Aaron Rodgers, uh, Brett Favre, I knew a little bit. Um, you know, obviously some of the other guys, but not to go out to dinner with them or anything like that. But you get to know them after a while, and they get to know you. I, I'm always amazed at how um, how savvy the players are with people in the media. Um, so, and, and I know the writers this is really hard on them uh, because we're not in the locker room this year. Everything's done on zoom calls and a lot of the good stuff that writers get from players happen away from a media setting, maybe at the locker where it's just the player and the reporter and they, you know, kind of go, there's a connection there. You can see the person and talk to the person. Um, For me, Aaron Rodgers and I would talk every week, um, maybe for five minutes tops, but you know, we would a little bit back and forth and then, I'd have my game charts and he'd point out, well, we like this matchup and we think we can win this matchup and we might go over here uh, on this one. 
And he, you know, he wouldn't give me the X's and O's because that would only confuse me. And he knows that. But he would be able to tell me, you know, we think we got an advantage over here with this person. And we got an advantage in this situation. We think we can do this and, and look for so-and-so on our side. You know, we're going to get him going this week. Um, and he knew I would not repeat that ever. But it gave me, as in my broadcast, I, I could, you know, kind of maybe after the fact mentioned that, you know, they were planning on, without using Aaron's name, they were planning on going here. They, they, this is where they felt they had an advantage. I, it would help give more depth to my description of what was happening because I knew why it was happening and I knew pretty much when it was going to happen. Yeah, you you can just absorb that information and it, and then just sort of let hints of it come out during the broadcast or something. Yeah, like but that. not before the game and not when it would betray the trust uh, of the player. You know, that kind of thing. You have to be careful about that because, you know, sometimes you'll know stuff that that they um, that they don't want you repeating. And mm-hmm. like, for example, Larry and I are at practice on Thursdays. Well, I remember, you know, they, they the media comes in for practice. They're in for about 15, 20 minutes. Then the rest of the media is out. And it's usually Larry and I are the only media people in there. Uh, we're the team broadcasters. And the thing that, that we have to do is whatever we saw after the media left, we don't talk about. Mm. And so the, there, I, there were instances where I've seen players get hurt on their Thursday practice. And I knew so-and-so wasn't going to play, but I couldn't say anything until the injury report came out and they declared he was out, you know. Um, and then, you know, that – and I wouldn't even say that I knew ahead of time he was out. I would just, you know, I wouldn't report it until the team released the information because um, there's certain trust there that your local broadcasters, your team broadcasters um, have to have uh, from the team and vice versa, the team to them. Yeah. And I mean, that even if there's a different level, that seems very similar to all different forms of journalism, uh, political journalism, even, you know, you have a certain level of trust with politicians, you know, and there's a certain nod on what stuff is going to be public and what isn't. And journalists kind of always have to walk that line of, uh, and it's different in football, I guess, politics, it's more, you walk the line of what's relevant, what's a greater need for the public to know than, you know, maybe burning a source. Um, but it's, it's just interesting to hear those insights, um, you know, from your perspective, because yeah, you're, you're such a trusted force in, in the Packers, uh, community. And, uh, do you ever mess that up? Do you ever accidentally say something you weren't supposed to, or is it second nature <laughs> to you? You probably don't want to admit that on this podcast if you do, but you know. yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. There've been instances where you said something that didn't come out right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just like, I'll, I'll tell you something really recently and I regret it, but um, we're talking, this is the end of the bears game this year. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the playoff scenarios and I'm mentioning the Washington Redskins, this, that, and the other thing. And my producer gets in my ear and says, "It's they're not the Redskins. And I just got immediately, for some reason, I got really pissed. And I said, oh, I mean, the football team, uh, Washington football team. I'm going to be calling them Redskins for the next 50 years, for God's sakes. And I was really pissed at myself, okay, because I haven't been able to break that habit. You know what I mean? One of those things. Yes. Well, people got up in arms about it. They started tweeting about it. The Packers heard from people, and and I, I I was just saying to myself, I said, number one, first and foremost, I know why they're changing the nickname. I support the reasons for that. It's offensive to people. 
I'm just mad at myself because I haven't been able to break the habit yet. And my point was, it'll probably take me 50 years to break that habit. And and so, but it came off like I, I, I'm never going to call them anything but the Redskins, which wasn't true at all. That was not my intent. I was mad at myself. So I got into a little bit of trouble recently for that. I hope it doesn't come back to rekindle on your podcast here because no, Charlie, I, I certainly understand why they've changed the uh, nickname um, with the Redskins with Washington. Um, Redskins was an offensive um, to a lot of people in our community. And, and that's, 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 I support that. That's a good thing. Uh, in Cleveland, I believe if I read it right, um, they're contemplating or they're going to change the name of the, uh, the, you know, the nickname Indians is no longer going to be the uh, Cleveland baseball team. I don't know what they're changing to or when they're going to do it. But, you know, I, I support these things because, you know, we're not in the business of offending people. You know, we're we're in the entertainment business. I don't want to offend people. People get offended uh, by these nicknames. They should be changed. And I support that wholeheartedly. I apologized on the social media network stuff. And and I, I if anybody listening to this podcast, I'd apologize to them if they felt offended by that. But it was more a commentary on me being disgusted with myself for not being able to come on, Wayne. You can break this habit, can't you? You know, that type of thing. Right. No, I totally understand that. I think it's a it's a difficult thing this day and age where people want to do the right thing and call um, say the right things. But then if they don't say the right thing and it's an accident, I think that there's too much jumping on people to either cancel them or to berate them or whatever. And I, I don't think that's particularly effective. People are trying their best. We've had a culture that's been one way for a long time. And that culture in many in many cases has been very wrong. And but to break um, the habit or turn on a dime, I just feel like it'd be good to give people more grace uh, than perhaps we're giving them right now. And, and there is a very small portion. I'm talking minuscule portion of our society and listeners or viewers uh, or people out in the crowd that just can't wait to jump on you for making a mistake. Mm-hmm. There's a small portion of people like that. And and that's, you know, that's unfortunate too, but that's a very small part of it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I think what you described is correct. Yeah. And, you know, and all we can do is do exactly what you did. You know, you say you're sorry for uh, that and then move forward and explain yourself more, you know, and, and the more we communicate, I think the more we understand each other and see where we're coming from, as opposed to just jumping down each other's throats. And in that sense, I think social media, well, I'm not going to be breaking any uh, any uh, thought barriers in saying that, but I think social media has really made us just uh, very flippant and uh, not productive as a society because, you know, you immediately heard feedback on Twitter and what, you know, you can explain yourself, but people will say, yeah, that's not what you meant, or they'll tell you what you meant, but it, it's yeah. not as much as a is a bridge of conversation as it is, you know, just a bunch of arrows being shot over a river, you know? I think you're exactly right in many cases uh, about that. And and that's the hard part, I think, with um, the social media, and, and we've talked to athletes about this over the years now, it, it has become, and it started with sports talk radio, whereas it wasn't as much fun to be an athlete anymore. Um, it, the experience is different than it was back in the sixth for the athletes in the sixties and seventies, even the eighties. 
um, social media, sports talk, and then bridging out into social media has, has created this entire uh, critique community uh, that, that is huge and just bombards our teams, our athletes, our sports figures. And now we get into politics and our politicians and everything else. Uh, and there's a whole negative aspect of that that makes it very hard to be in these uh, positions. And people will say, well, he's making millions of dollars. Yeah, but he's still a person. He still has feelings. He still doesn't want to be chastised by millions. You know, we forget that these these guys are people, that these uh, even politicians, they're people. They have families. If they don't mind, maybe their wife or kids do, that kind of thing. And and um, that's been lost. And you mentioned communication. I I, uh, I went to a communication school at Emerson College, and I was back there probably 10 or 15 years ago. And we were, I was in on a discussion with some professors and some people who are in po- politics and, and that type of thing uh, in Washington. And we we're talking about the fact is the problem we have in our country is that we don't communicate. Um, we have all these avenues of communication, but we don't communicate. Um, in, for example, uh, in politics, if you're um, conservative, you watch what? Fox News. If you're a liberal, you watch an MSNBC. Maybe there's another network that's kind of in between the two. You watch that. Nobody watches. If you watch Fox, you sure as hell don't watch MSNBC and, and back and forth. And we've gotten so polarized in our country now that we we can't even talk politics. And I was a political science major. I love talking politics. I especially like talking politics with people who don't agree with me. And I've got so many friends of mine that don't agree with my politics. And I enjoy talking politics with them because you know what? I might learn something. Well, anyway, the conclusion at this seminar I was at at Emerson College uh, about 10, 15 years ago was we don't communicate. The the, the colonists communicated better than we do because what they would do, they would put up a point of view or information on a piece of parchment, on a stick, and everybody in the community would come by and read it. They'd all read it, you know? And uh, so, but but now we we hear one thing over here and one thing over here, and we don't really listen to both sides. Well, and I think a lot of that is driven by ego. I think people want to be right, and when you want to be right, uh, you don't want to learn something new. You want to defend whatever your point is until it's, you know, for instance, with your comment on Washington, you know, a, a way somebody could have taken that, a way we've seen some of our political leaders take that is start with a mistake and then double down on a mistake uh, because they said it and they're always right. You know, that's an ego driven thing. And we see that a lot. Whereas you said, no, I, you misunderstood me, of course, and then you explained your position more on it. But there's so much gray area, I guess, on on the left and the right. Nothing is as clean cut as we as CNN or Fox News makes it seem. And when you double down on that, on the rigidness of the political line or whatever it is, and then those are just amplified on social media in these social media bubbles, we just have a bunch of people becoming radicalized and it's it's becoming you know very similar to how we see 
uh, radicalization happen in other countries. And it's it's been happening slowly over time. But we're, we're you know, kind of like the the frog boiling right now. I, I feel like where all of a sudden you look up and you're like, you say they did what at the Capitol, you know, um, yeah. or they did what over here. And it's it's just these things are becoming more commonplace. And it's because we're just echoing. And, and yeah, that 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 mentality of Please prove me wrong. I would love to talk about this because I would love to be proved wrong. I feel like if we all had that same desire to be proven wrong and to learn something new, that's coming from a place of wisdom. Whereas doubling down on whatever your point is and finding, you know, facts to facts and quotes to fit your narrative, that's coming from a place of ego. I, I can't agree with you, Maureen. You know, it's funny because these issues we're talking about in roundabout forms. You know, we all want, we want it to be black and white, clear, black and white. This is what it is. This is what how we do it. This is what we believe, all this other stuff. When actually in this world, it's really not black and white. Um, there's a lot of gray, uh, you know, yeah. in this world, in, in, in our society. There's a lot of gray. And and we're all on one side or the other trying to, to make it black and white and easily understandable, but that's not life. I mean, life is is filled with many colors and gray is one of them. Yes, yes. And that that it that is done intentionally and we've seen it. It's done intentionally by uh people on it's done a lot on talk radio. Uh uh I've heard it. It's done a lot on social media. It's done a lot with politicians where they want to make things as easy as possible. Even with the mask situation early on, what happened? They said, uh, don't wear the masks. And the reason they said don't wear the masks was there wasn't enough information about the masks. And then um, there were, they didn't want people to run on the masks, so they didn't have enough for the healthcare workers. Well, so then people took that don't use the mask thing and they said, we don't need the masks. Just see what they said back then or see what the CDC said back then. We don't need masks. But it's like there's so much nuance in that. These are the reasons they said you don't need masks back then. These are the reasons they say you need them now. But I feel like people just stick to these talking points or these, you know, again, facts and quotes that fit your narrative uh, without looking at the the gray area. So it's just I don't know if it's education. I don't think it's really education in the sense that people need to go get a master's, but it's just being open to being wrong. And I, I don't know. I feel like I find myself wrong a lot, but I, I think it's that if we can all have a hunger for more information and it's, it's you know, it, it's a humility that you're not always right. I think We need a tolerance for another view. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's yeah. really what we need. We, yeah. we have to be tolerant of an other, uh, of another view different from ours and understand that maybe there's something we can learn from that view. And maybe there's something they can learn from our view. Um, and that's, but again, that's kind of where we are. We're in a very polarized situation in our society now. And, and, uh, and that's unfortunate. We see that to a degree in sports too. And, uh, it's a little bit of what we were talking about before. And, um, you know, but by the same token, it's, it's very interesting to see how, these social issues we've been going through in this country, our athletes have really, uh, and, and people just don't want to believe this, but they're real people like you and I, they have a platform perhaps, but they also feel compelled to act on that platform for the greater good. And, and that's what I've seen um, with people coming out, LeBron James doing what he's done with the Bucks when they boycotted that uh, playoff game. Well, that took a lot of guts on their part to do that. 
Um, the Packers have made their uh, situation known. They've been very good in the community with, in those regards. I, I think, you know, our sports teams, our athletes are trying to, to be more involved uh, with the community beyond sports. And sometimes these issues are thorny. Uh, sometimes these social issues are, are very thorny. But um, trust me, the athletes are all hurting as we are when things aren't good uh, with some of these issues. And, and they're merely now uh, taking a, a stand that, hey, listen, this is, this is what we think is right. And they have every right to do that. Whereas a lot of us in sports are saying, well, we just want to get away from all that stuff. That's why we watch the football game. Yeah, but the football game is being played by citizens in your community. Mm -hmm. And they have feelings, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've never bought into that idea of shut up and dribble. Or like just yeah. because you're really good at basketball doesn't mean you don't have thoughts or opinions. You know, and the people who say that are a lot of times they host a, a cable news show. And I'll just say as someone who was on TV hosting a show, you don't need a very uh, important degree to do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I did not need a... a a master's or whatever, a doctorate, and you don't to get on to be a, a news host. Uh, so really, I think anybody's opinion is important, especially since we're in the age of social media where we're listening to anybody's opinions anyway. Our last president was, I mean, he was a reality TV star, for God's sake. So it doesn't make sense to tell somebody just because they're an athlete to shut up and dribble because, you know, especially if you didn't tell re reality TV star to shut up and put his makeup on. So it's just <laughs> there's a little bit of a, a double standard going there. And really, if at the end of days you just don't like their opinion or whatever well then talk about that but don't say just because they're an athlete means their opinion is discredited in some way yeah i, I can't agree with you more um and i'll tell you what these guys uh, that i've met in sports um very much in tune with what's going on around them they really are um it, and and so you know i mean they're like any of us they have feelings they have cares they have desires that we're all on the same tiny planet together and we got to find a way to live together yeah. And do you think there's something we can do to engage with people that may disagree with us? You say you like doing that. Is there sort of a you know, somebody's got an opinion different from yours. Is there kind of a way you approach that just in your casual day to day? I, I probably I probably don't do it very well. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, the, the thing is, I, I go back again to that seminar I was at. And ever since then, I've kind of watched all of the news channels, you know, if I'm like, I usually have the news on in the background in the office here when I'm working, doing paperwork or something. And um, so I'll have, you know, I'll have CNN on and then I'll put Fox on and then I'll put MSNBC on. So by the end of the day, I got kind of a compilation of, of mm -hmm. all this stuff of what's in. I feel like, well, I kind of think I know what's going on in the world, because if you only watch one, you only know what's going on in that part of the world. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So. Um, I, is there a way of doing it? I don't know. Most people today don't want to talk. What, what's the number one thing you say when you get together as a family? You say, don't talk politics and don't talk religion. Right. Right. You know, I, to me, those are two of the most, um, you know, those are the most interesting things I can talk about. Yeah. No, they, they're fun. And I think that the, the phrase, tell me more is a good one, you know, because if you have somebody who's got a very bold statement, uh, if you just ask for more information, you're either going to learn something or they're going to get to a point where they say, well, I don't know past this. And then it's like, well, maybe we go find more past this 
And we, it, because people just dig in so hard on some stuff that they just don't know past the headline, you know? So anyway, it's, it's fun though. And yeah, I think building conversation around it, that's how we're going to grow. We just got to get out of yep. these social media echo chambers. So. Yeah, absolutely. Last question is, what do you recommend to somebody who wants to do what you're doing? What do you recommend they do? Wow. It's, um, it's so much different than when I got into the business now, uh, Charlie. Um, if someone wants to do play-by-play, -play, I would personally, I would urge them to go out and do it. You know, get a tape recorder, even if you do it in front of a TV set or, or whatever. Uh, you need to do you need to do repetitions. You, you you can't learn it from a book. You have to do it. It's trial and error. It's it's a lot of that. What I see in the business today is people get out of college, they get a an internship and then the internship turns into they become a cub producer and then they produce a show and then they maybe get on a little bit get on the air a little bit and then they eventually get into a maybe they get get into a host chair uh and then they want to do play by play and so you know the station puts them on a game or whatever and, and they get into the business that way whereas i always felt when i came out of college in the 70s late 70s uh, i knew that what i would do is go to the midwest and work my way up the ladder, which is exactly what happened. And, but it's not like that today. And there's people hire out of convenience. They hire because the, the business is hurting and, you know, it, it, they hire because it's cheap to hire that producer and, and let him cut his teeth doing this play by play on the games that really, and I think because of that play by play in some cases, in some places has become a bit of a lost art um, mm. in some places. I, I don't think the uh, people getting into it now, um, they're getting breaks, but they're coming from a non-play-by-play -play area of the business in a lot of cases. And that doesn't mean the kid can't grow and, and become a really good play-by-play -play guy at some point. The fact is the trial and error is happening at a much higher level. Whereas when I was cutting my teeth, I was doing high school games. At least right. people might be doing major college games. And in some cases, the NBA is, is terrible. The, the NBA thinks so little of its local radio. Uh, they'll put anybody on that. And it, it's really sad. You know, we, at least in Milwaukee, have a really good radio set up there with uh, Ted Davis and Dennis Krause. They're real professionals. They're from the old school. They know what they're doing. But a lot of these teams, uh, you know, they're, they're not hiring. They, they, they don't care about radio. And I think that's become a really a lost art. And TV side, you know, it's a whole different ball game. I, I, most of my career, I've done radio and TV. There's, and I've loved doing that because they're so different. They're absolutely so different. Um, you know, that TV, all you have to do is kind of frame the picture with a word or two to just that this describes something that everyone can see. Um, and television is analyst driven. The analyst is the star of the television show. Really is. Um, Whereas in radio, it's it's wholly different. You're painting the picture. You're not framing it. You're painting it, okay? And, and you're hoping that that color guy can kind of put the frame around it, explaining why that particular play happened in a finite amount of time. On radio, your star is the play-by-play. -play. On television, your star is the analyst. And so I, I, I don't see people coming up in the business uh, like that. Uh, for example, let me give you an example. Chris Fowler. Um, when I was at ESPN, he was a sideline guy and then he was in, you know, was a host. And then later in his career, got into play by play. I, I think there are, they have probably 20 or 30 guys who are better at play by play than Chris Fowler. Yet he's doing their lead game at ESPN. He kind of worked his way up the ladder that way. Right. Um, 
I, I don't know if that makes any sense. And I'm not ripping Chris Fowler because I think he does a fine job. But there are better play-by-play guys. There are real play-by-play guys. And Chris will always be a studio guy. I always felt Brent Musburger, studio guy. He was a newspaper guy to begin with. Got into the studio, got big, larger than life in the CBS studio, and eventually started doing all this college football play-by-play. And then eventually they were going to give him Major League Baseball, and then they fired him uh, over something. And so, but I always felt, and I still to this day, I would say it to Brent, I said, I, I think you're a great, great studio guy. You're a much better studio guy than you are as play-by-play. Not that you're a bad play-by-play guy. You're not. You're excellent. You're very good. You've done bigger stuff than I could ever dream of doing. But you're better in the studio. You're a studio guy first. And um, you know, there are a lot of people out there that, uh, that that's how they're getting into the business. Now they're coming from somewhere other than play by play and basically growing, uh, in play by play as they do a job they were given. Yeah. And so uh, you're almost seeing a lost art form though. It seems what you're saying, lost yeah. art form with the radio play by play. And do you see that though? Cause podcasts are coming back quite a bit and there's a lot of people who are, uh, listening more. Do you think w- with sports specifically though, we are there's going to be a resurgence or a, a, a renaissance uh, in play-by-play again, or do you think it's going the way of sort of TV-based? I think it's it's going the way of uh, TV-based. I think what you have in many cases, um, you have sometimes they take TV guys and put them on radio uh, to do play-by-play, and, and you know, you, you don't have as good a description of the game itself. Um, radio is a whole different animal than television. A lot of people – in our business, executives I'm talking about think that they could just take a guy who's done TV play-by-play and throw him on radio, and uh, oh, away they go. Well, that's not really the case. Um, you know, I, I, I think that um, I, I really think that the real play-by-play guy uh, that came up doing that, aspiring to do that his entire career, um, I think that's kind of over. I, I think it's different. I think people want different things. Like, for example, in television, Charlie, they don't want a solid play-by-play. They want a guy who's going to kind of orchestrate the production. You know what I mean? Get get it to the color guy. Get it to the spot. Uh, get it to the feature. That kind of thing. That That's so much of what a play-by-play guy does on television. It has nothing to do with play-by-play. Um, whereas on radio, obviously, you've got to be. The play-by-play is the uh, medium. Right, right. It's almost more of a host uh, kind of, yeah. sort of getting into the next deal. So I guess bottom line, your uh, advice for anyone who really wants to do play-by-play is to get a recorder and do it. Just and, do it. And, but if you want to get into some other aspect of the biz, kind of get in somewhere, build up your social media, w- work your way up. Is, is that the best advice? I agree. Yeah, that's really it. Um, and, and don't be afraid to take you know a low-level job, obviously, and as you prove yourself within that company, um, you'll move up in that company, or maybe you'll move to another company, another uh, area. Uh, you'll you'll move up um, if you're good at what you do. And um, you know, I think a lot of people, and we hear some some people on the air that I don't know. A lot of these guys do grow up from producer to become a host on the air. It's not very good. They're not very good. It takes a long time to get used to listening to them in that role, and they're not very good. But um, you know, if you have any ability at all. Be competent at production. And, and it helps also, I think, if you're an on-air host, for example, to know what it took to get a guest lined up for that show, to know what it took to get, you know, the, the commercials right and everything going at the right time and, and that type of thing, to being able to write copy. I would say to people who are wanting to get into our business, you know, read and write. Learn how to read and write. And I mean, really, because uh, learning how to read and retain what you read in a fast fashion 
uh, that'll help a lot because um, so much of what we do is based off of what's happening around us. You know what I mean? That's where you, you make the phrases. Yeah. And it's it's got to be right. Very quick. And, and it, having that become sort of second nature is incredibly important. And also, I, I will just tack on to this. It's nice. I, I would never feel bad about taking a job in a place nobody knows or doing this that nobody knows because, you know, that's where you really cut your teeth. And when you fall on your face, uh, it's nice that only yeah. 200 people saw it, you know? <laughs> so. yeah, exactly. No, you're exactly right. I mean, and that's why it's, that's why those guys out there banging away doing high school football or something. That's great. Um, mm-hmm. And by the way, that's the hardest sport to do high school football. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> you don't you exactly know, I, know I did all the names. Pretty high level in Texas, but high school football normally, or, you know, it's not like, for example, I study tapes on, on Packers. I've got all this information and everything else going on. Um, high school football, my God, you barely know who's in wearing what number and maybe you've been able to talk to the coach a little bit. It's really hard to do high school football. And I, I remember doing that and it was, it was a tough prepare, but, um, you know, that's where you cut your teeth and that's where you learn your study habits and know what works for you and what doesn't work for you, that kind of thing. And, and you're right, Charlie, if you fail, nobody except you really saw it. Right. So it's great. Right. Yeah. Bottom line, just get out there and do it. Whatever it is you want to do, just do it. Yeah. Is that a fair way I to sum it up? It. Yeah. Cool. The Nike slogan. Nike's going to pay us for this. That, that's, uh... <laughs> All right. Thanks, Wayne. Really All appreciate right, you. Awesome. Sounds good, Charlie. All Take the care. best. Thanks. Yep. Bye-bye. Thanks for everything. All right. That's it for this week's episode of the Cast. Don't forget to follow Cast on all social media handles. That's at Cast. You can also follow Wayne Larvey at Wayne Larvey on Twitter. And one more time, thanks to all of you who have read the podcast and left a comment. Uh, I would really appreciate it if you did that again. Uh, Charlie, how much would you appreciate it? Well, I would appreciate it so much that I will send you a bag of frozen perch from the bottom of my freezer. Is it a little freezer burnt? Possibly, but that that is just, it, you know, it's still good. Okay, you put it in deep fryer, nobody can tell the difference. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you all for listening. Uh, keep her moving. While you're keeping her moving, watch out for deer. Also, tell your folks I says hi. Okay, bye-bye. So roll out the barrel and get the band brewing. Life's got you down. Just keep her moving. It's on Wisconsin. Sometimes when you're ice fishing, you put your foot in the walleye hole and go ass over tea kettle and you think you're done. No, you got to keep her moving.